This podcast is made possible by Cloud Microphones, makers of Cloudlifter mic activators. Want to hear more of what your favorite dynamic and ribbon mics really sound like? Check out the entire line of Cloud Lifters and get lifted. Learn more at cloudmicrophones.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Chicago's Neil Francis recently released In Plain Sight, the follow-up to his critically acclaimed debut, Changes. It is an album filled with personal stories wrapped in a deep pocket of funky grooves, classic tones, and masterful songwriting. Jeff Stanfield caught up with Neil to chat about recording In Plain Sight, discuss some of the record's tracks, and then even got a call from the album's mixer, Dave Fridman. Enjoy! And as much as it hurts, it remains to this day that I love her And that stays just the same So In Plain Sight, your new record, um, you know, you guys recorded this in a church that you were living in, St. Peter's. Was that in Chicago? Mm-hmm. It's in uh, Chicago on the northwest side. It's a neighborhood called Belmont Cregan. It's kind of off the beaten track. Yeah. How did you get, how did you end up there? So I had um, inherited the job of accompanist uh, for their services from my friend Dom, who uh, was moving to New York. He offered me the gig. I sort of, I, I didn't really think I was qualified at first, but uh, he convinced me to do it. And uh, for about three years, like prior to living there, I was just playing their services on piano and organ on Sundays. And it was just me and a vocalist and like very small congregation um, in a huge church. So it was like at one time there were probably 800 congregants and now there's like 10 or 20 uh, wow. so it was pretty bizarre, but, um, yeah, I, uh, right around the time I released changes, um, at the end of September, 2019, I was also like in a really bad breakup. Um, and I just needed to find a place to live in short order. And I was like, all of this was happening at the same time. Like I was just I came off a run where we were supporting Lee Fields and then we had my album release and I was out to like three or four in the morning. And then I played church on Sunday and like, I got there at probably eight. So I was just super strung out and depressed from the breakup. And I was just, I realized that I, I just like was walking around and I, you know, I had seen that the parsonage where the pastor usually lives had been vacant the entire time I had worked there. And so I was just like, maybe I should just ask if I can stay there for a little bit. And I was really surprised that, uh, you know, like about a week later, they were like, yeah, you can come live here. And um, it remained open-ended how long I could stay. I was anticipating being there until like the new year. They loved having me there because it was, 
you know, another person in the building 24 hours a day. And obviously it was beneficial to me because like, especially when the pandemic hit, I had a roof over my head and it was just this very serendipitous chain of events. It was pretty bizarre. Yeah. And there was a piano there and there was an organ there. Of course, at any given time, no neighbors, no, you know, you could go and and play, which was probably beneficial for the writing, but also, you know, therapeutic. At some point, you decided that that was the place you wanted to go ahead and make a record, right? Yeah. So did um, you did you guys just bring gear in and how did that happen and what did you guys bring in? So I uh, when we came back from tour in March, like when quarantine started, um, a few weeks after we got back, I got uh, my guitarist had a Otari MX5050 eight track that he left at my place. And I had like a Tascam 16 channel mixer and just a few, I didn't really have any like external equipment besides those. I had like a few microphones, like some real basic stuff um, that Kellen, our guitarist had left there as well. Um, and then I just had the equipment that we used on the road. So I had like the CP70, um, my manager's Hammond A100 actually, uh, my drum kit from the road. And then like, um, you know, all the other keyboards I have basically. We're, we're like in this little basement room. That's where I started demoing out the record. And then like, as the conversation with labels was happening we decided we would set a date for recording um and that st peter's was the place we were going to do it just out of necessity because studios were closed uh for the most part and um so uh mike novak who engineered the record he had an extensive you know collection of rack equipment like yeah like you know uh two 1176s he has you know a, a great collection of preamps and um like a toft 16 channel mixer that he brought over uh we did most of the main like tracking on uh like the four piece live tracking took place on a task 388 quarter inch machine and so um yeah man i mean we had the control room set up in the living room space and like the living room dining room area of the parsonage and then we had a uh, 16 channel snake running through the laundry chute in the kitchen down the, into the basement and like there was this like sick little wood paneled sort of that 70s show basement room that that's where we had the uh, live room, you know, you know, that was it. Like Sergio, the producer flew out from LA and we spent like a few days building the studio out. And then um, the first time we went to record, I actually got extremely ill with a non COVID illness. 
um, and we had to scrap that session and come back like six weeks later. It's great that you mentioned the 388, and that makes a lot of sense just in terms of the sound of it. I think that there's something really interesting about having that that home space you know you're not in a studio it, it is different it's just a little bit more personal it's it feels a little more free in a lot of ways and i think that really comes through on the recording so your producer sergio you know what what is it about working with him and you know what what's he bringing to the table so i actually worked on a project with sergio uh prior to neil francis there was a band called the herd that uh Myself and our bass player, Mike Starr, were in this funk band. We had been huge fans of Orgone, which is Sergio's band, and um, Monophonics, like the first Monophonics single that he engineered. Um, so like uh, Sergio engineered the only heard record. Um, and that's how I got to know him. And when I was ready to start recording changes, I reached out to him and it was like just another situation where um, I was really doing things on my own at that point. Um, long story short, I go out to his studio in North Hollywood to do the changes sessions. And we really, we really got to know each other um, and became friends, I think on that recording session. And part of the reason I think we really get along in the studio and why I chose to work with him on changes in the first place, is just we like so much of the same um, stuff, just, just from the standpoint of like uh, aesthetic and sonic quality. Um, you know, we're both really into, he would call it just like cutty 70s funk and soul. And he has like an, another decade's worth of crate digging knowledge than I do. So he's always like, oh, it's like, if you like uh, the meters and you should check out this, you know, Wild Magnolias project with, uh, you know, the Gators and Willie T. And, you know, like he's constantly... Um, throwing me stuff like that like I just I actually was just go into a record store when we were on the road and I was like seeing a bunch of stuff that he had mentioned like this Lamont Dozier solo record that I really dig now because he turned me on to it and um, so like we just really bond over music we also have like um, a great sort of uh, our sense of humor is very aligned like uh and and that was just really helpful and and just working in the studio together and um being comfortable you know um especially when we got to tracking overdubs and doing vocals for this record for in plain sight it was like just the two of us and the tape machine like trans um because we did all the overdubs on tape as well. We bounced from the 388 to an MS-16 one-inch 16 track. And then like the remote for that unit was like sticking in just like a really uh, particular way. And 
you know, we were just together 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day for 12 or 13 days for that dub session. It was like crucial that we liked each other, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. <laughs> this has come up so many times in conversations I've been having. What is our point of reference? That drummer, Nate Smith, and, and I bring this up and I've brought it up in other interviews, but you know, he says that your, your references are like our hard drives, right? Like that's who you work with. And you have this library in your head of music. And, and those are your points of reference when you want to get somewhere quickly. Uh, in the studio you don't want to spend a bunch of time like you know explaining yes. yourself and i also exactly. don't want to go digging it up on my phone or on my computer Fuck yeah. and it's just like oh this record you're talking to the drummer i'm like oh kind of yeah. like, kind of like this you know you know it's that shared pool of knowledge and and energy from records that we all love that gets you more quickly to the places that you want to get it's like a mind meld sort yeah. of situation in in like listening to the music that Sergio's produced and engineered, like I know he digs the same stuff and has the engineering expert expertise to like achieve those sounds. And, and also when we're not working on something, we're just spinning records. Cause the nice thing about that home studio situation again was like, you know, uh, the drummer and I were living in the parsonage together and we had our collection of like 800 records and his old his uh his grandparents old like Macintosh uh receiver and two turntables and we were just like you know it was it was a pretty fantastic time looking back you 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 reference we don't have to get into it but we, you reference in your bio like uh you thought that the uh, church was haunted and it immediately made me think not of ghosts, but really like when I listen to this record, it's like the ghosts of all of my favorite records, you know, <laughs> I thought, you know, that your ghost comment was apropos in terms of really, I just felt like the ghosts of, you know, rock past hadn't yeah, dude. come in, <laughs> you know, um, that's my um, favorite Christmas ghost. Yeah, exactly. Rockers rock past. Yeah. yeah. So the mix on this record is pretty interesting for uh, for a record that has its feet firmly planted in like the the power of the seventies. This record doesn't really sound like that to me. You know, the presentation of the writing and and music and recording is the mix doesn't necessarily totally represent that in a great way. Before we call Dave Fridman, why did you have Dave mix this record? Well, I uh, have been a fan of David's for a long time, and I, I admittedly, I like don't have a lot of records in my collection, you know, um, past like 1978, you know, because I inherited most of them from my dad, but then also the stuff that I've collected on my own is, you know, prior to that uh like you know the 80s sort of um aesthetic that started in like 1979 1980 you know um and i really just i was a fan of the flaming lips growing up and but also like really into the um tame impala records that he mixed and uh produced and um there was like a neon indian 
record he did, Era Extrania, that was like just something I really liked um, years ago. And I, I kind of didn't even realize he was the common thread between all those records. But like those are, you know, the five or eight records I own past 1990. You know, they're all like David Fridman mixes and productions. So when his name came up, um, when John at ATO was mentioning that, like, he was something that, or he was someone that Fridman was someone it might be cool to work with. I was like, oh, hell yeah. Like, really love everything he's done. So um, that was sort of how that came about. Um, well, maybe we should call Dave and just, yeah. you know, see what he has to say about some of this stuff. There he is. There we go. Hey, Dave. Hey, how's Hello. it going? We've got Dave. We've got Dave Fridman on the on the line. Hi, guys. Long time no see, man. I know. It's been a minute. Where are you, Dave? <laughs> I am at my brother-in-law's <laughs> helping uh, with some construction. <laughs> it would appear I was yeah it looks like it looks that's uh that's excellent um we 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 unfortunately won't be able to share the the video with everybody on a podcast but I wish we could um but maybe I'll take a screenshot um well well thanks for for joining us um I I had some questions I I love uh, you Neil and I've been talking about how how they they track this record and and mm. uh um I I was saying to him that the, you know, even though that the songwriting and, and production style is a, is a bit, well, especially the, mostly the songwriting is really rooted in a seventies vibe that, um, you know, the, the sound of the record is decidedly not that it's very, very much, um, before I even knew that you mixed it, I said, God, this sounds like, it sounds like something that Dave Fridman would have done and lo and behold. Awesome. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And, and my daughter uh, who, you know, loves uh, Yoshimi and um, Tame Impala records will also was like, this record's really cool sounding, you know, she's 17. <laughs> I thought that was kind of interesting, you know? Um, so, you know, what, what was your take on the music and, you know, in terms of, a direction to take things sonically? Well, I, I mean, I think um, I, I really appreciate what you said, but also I think so much of this was baked into the cake when it arrived um, at, at my doorstep. So, you know, what I heard initially, the, you know, the rough mixes was like, that's that spirit and the, the adventuresome element of it and like the the desire to fly is all right there and i just needed to you know be a part of helping that be even more obvious that's all yeah i mean as as end listeners we're not privy to sort of like the sausage making right like the the what went in and what came out and so right. i'm always curious i mean this record is really compressed sounding and then when when neil was saying oh we we did a lot of it on a 388 i was kind of like oh that's definitely the sound of that exactly machine, yeah you know? how did you put it together from a mix perspective knowing what you got well a lot of what attracted me you know i mean i had questions when i heard it i was like i hear this i hear that and the other thing and so i went back to the guys and said you know 
am I hearing this right? Or is this is this what you're thinking? Is this how you're envisioning what's going on? And you know, the answers just kept coming back. Yes, yes, yes. That's a, that's what we're thinking. And you know, and finding out that it's all you know a maximum of 16 tracks per song and going okay cool this is you know really in my wheelhouse here of how i like to work i like to have it be you know i like i like it when people are decisive and we've made all those production decisions and now we just need to do our best to make it even more apparent in that final version so you know the fact that they had to bounce tracks together and you know, have three, four tracks maximum for the drums and do, you know, all this kind of stuff is like, yeah, that's cool. That's for me, that's a mixer's dream because we're not relitigating a thousand things when we're going to go work on it. We've already made so many decisions and that's, you know, we're, you know, they, they lived in the moment while they were making it and just did it. And that's, that's obvious on a first listen to me when I, when I got it and, exactly what i needed to you know convey in the final product so it still definitely has some of your sonic sure fingerprints on it you know well i could never leave well enough alone and you know <laughs> i i'm i'm very fortunate that i continue to find people that say do whatever you want dave and this is exactly what they said to me and i did and fortunately we you know had a great you know rapport that way that you know the things that i was trying to do or heard or thought could be great to embellish um the songwriting and the and the sounds that were already there um were you know pretty easily and quickly agreed upon by all parties i'll ask you one more question and then let you go and just um even though you've sort of touched on this i mean what did the mixing do for this record I'm maybe not the best judge of that, but um, I think I, I I think what was maybe um, sometimes needed to get done was was some clarity. There was uh, there were some elements that um, you know after after a few bounces and you know being spur in the moment, not worrying about the making sure that every you know we don't we're not making a Steely Dan record, so not worried about that recording approach. We're worried about capturing that moment. And so sometimes you'd be like, okay, well, I'm going to have to really do some hooly dooly here to make, make sure that these lyrics bounce out, uh, out and we can hear them clearly or what, whatever the case may be, just to make sure that, um, that again, so the, that the emotional content was conveyed correctly. That's really, I mean, it was all there. Just I sometimes needed to, you know, shave this down or point that a little bit and then here we're good to go. I want to tell you too. I want to tell you too, though. I, just for re reference, the one thing about mixing this too, I don't think we spent more than six hours on any individual song mixing this. We just, you know, it was really like we're either hitting the emotional uh, target for this or we're not, and then we reassess and get back on it. But we just did it, and that was so great from from my standpoint. Just being in the moment as a mixer, which doesn't happen that often anymore it's very hard to find that where people are mixing a song over a period of days, you've got multiple songs working in the box and all this kind of stuff. And it's very, you know, it's very methodical and it can be very detailed and that can be awesome, but it also, you don't have that, that feeling of like, it's here. It's in my, right now as I'm moving the fader, I'm making this happen and then it's, then we're done and we've captured it. It's over. 
which is awesome. All right. Well, thanks for your time, man. Sure. Good to see you. Get back Good to, to see get you the nail you. gun. I will. I'll get back to work. <laughs> okay. Take care, guys. All right, man. Bye-bye. Take care. I'll talk to you soon, man. Sounds Bye. good. Bye-bye. Um, that was great. Yeah, I keep mentioning just how uh, gracious he was and uh, just easy to work. Just like I had this sort of Wizard of Oz um, notion with with David. Um, like I, I was I intimidated just because like of his mastery and um, he really wanted to just serve the recording and so very quickly like we all became comfortable that that is me and Sergio became comfortable just saying exactly what we felt about each mix and then the the workflow in which we were working as well is just like is a great sort of plate for me moving forward because it was just like all right we took 12 days to mix 12 tracks and you know he told us which one we were going to work on that day. He gave us our first mix by 4 or 5 p.m. We submitted revisions for like an overnight mix. We had that mix overnight and then submitted another set of revisions so he could do a final mix before like working on the next song. So it was really, I think, 12 or 13 days total. There was one track we went back and did a fourth mix for, but... Well, let's talk about a few of the songs. And uh, I wish we could just play the whole record for everybody and everybody should go listen to this whole record because it's a, it's a good one. But um, how about Alameda Apartments? Now, and, and this one actually sounds, to me, the first time I heard it, it felt almost disjointed. And then when I read sort of about the song, I thought it was such a beautiful presentation of the sentiment. So I had a dream um, about moving into this haunted apartment building um, and like woke up with that name of the apartment building. You know how like old apartment buildings have the name of the building inscribed above the doorway. And that was like in my brain when I woke up and wrote this song down and it was like, as I was in a uh, really tumultuous breakup, like this is years ago. Um, and the whole thing just, I don't know, I wrote it, I wrote it very quickly. And it was at a time where I wasn't writing really anything a lot. Um, and I had never encountered that word Almeida, which is all over the place on the West Coast or really anywhere Spanish were. Um, but just, you know, retaining that was very rare. And so it's, a, it's an interesting song in that, in that way. People ask if it hurts. Well, 
Definitely one of my favorite tracks on the record. Problems I wrote with uh, Chris Galbuta, my buddy in Nashville, and he's a profession, uh, professional songwriter. Um, he's just a... Um, that was written like the first time we ever got together and um, we become really, really good friends. But it was like, like we were saying before, like we have that report just through like the things we listen to and the things we like so you know he was able to like really articulate what i was going through more recently and we had a great time writing it Can't stop the rain. You, you have Derek Trucks doing a very classic slide guitar addition to the track. Yeah, um, I uh, I wrote that after Jazz Fest in 2019 down in New Orleans with my buddy David Shaw, um, and just I keep going back to this, but like David and I our close friends he's like uh, a big reason why i got started with my solo career and um you know we're just able to communicate on a really meaningful level so it's easy to be like open and um listen to suggestions when we're writing a song and then like we wrote a song we wrote a version of a song uh, we made a version of the demo or, um, together as the two of us in uh, New Orleans. And then I brought it up to Chicago and I already had like a sort of, um, I knew how I wanted it to sound in, in my head. I wanted to bring a lot of that, you know, Alan Toussaint flavor to it. Um, sort of like, uh, like jangly pop, um, Delaney and Bonnie, you know, whatever. Um, 
pastiche. <laughs> a great one um tell me about sentimental garbage i mean and i this one has like an epic ride out um that i just loved was that like a studio uh jam or was that more crafted that was a studio jam for sure that was like a missed cue for an ending um and then we just kept on playing and brought it back in and now that's been worked into like pretty dramatic um <laughs> i forget what my my drummer calls it it's like second tier jamming i'm it's it's borrowed from like the fish head community because he's like a big fish guy but like we really take that on its own little ride in that middle section before we bring it back around it's become a really fun one live yeah stretch stretch it out you know 12 12 13 minutes sometimes nice <laughs>
How about one more? How about Say Your Prayers? And this one closes the record, and I, I love this one. It might be my favorite track on the record. I always joke now that I could just make a whole record and it will be like nine seconds long because that's about the attention span of, of people these days, you know? No! <laughs> yeah, no, I know. But it, obviously you're still making records and I love the idea of how things fit together. There's a puzzle, there's the sequencing, there's the storyline, there's the, everything about it, right? I think people like listening to records too and um, this this like... Uh, the decision for Say Your Prayers, first of all, all right, so Sentimental Garbage was supposed to be the title of the record. That, that, that was like my uh, first and foremost uh, title. And uh, it was just sort of like everybody else, band aside, but like, you know, my management and the, the label were like, that's so self-deprecating. Um, I was sort of talked out on that, out of that. And we had this other track called In Plain Sight, which uh, is not included on the record because In Plain Sight was going to be the last track of In Plain Sight. And I'm, uh, I fully expect that to be released because it's a great song. But like we had, you know, these four other tracks and, you know, one of which was Say Your Prayers, which was the last song that I wrote, actually. And that was one that came together. I created the demo for that between the first session getting canceled and the session starting up again. So it was like born of this really like uh, pretty intense moment of like anxiety and depression for me because we had this huge thing just hit the skids um because i got seriously sick and i was sick for probably two weeks and then there was another four weeks before the session started up again so like i finally got down in the studio and i was like writing about my depression and uh the illness like the actual illness i had and the, the pandemic itself and um sort of trying to do squeeze some hope out of that and like kind of give credence to or uh, reference like what I need to do to stay uh, sane which is to just like be present meditate you know and that that's kind of what that song's about look forward to seeing you in Seattle we'll figure out a way to connect and get uh, get the best coffee in town yeah you guys like coffee out there I heard uh, yeah we occasionally drink it yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Yeah. All right, Neil. Thanks. We'll see you soon. All right. Peace. See you, Jeff. Later. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapebot.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>